Miss the show? No worries on pointing on the podcast while calling Justin Trudeau a dictator may play well to the base, but it is a game MPs are playing that won't actually win conservatives any actual votes, certainly not from those who are actually looking for another party to vote for. I'll talk about that. Trudeau government announcing that they'll call for an ambitious climate plan to cut emissions by 40% in eight years, and yet nowhere in any of these discussions do we ever hear anything about the very clean and affordable nuclear energy, which we have an abundance of. What is it with this government that it won't look to reliable sources that we can afford right now? RCMP is going to be sending a number of officers to investigate if Russia has committed war crimes. I mean, yeah, it seems kind of obvious that they are, but you have to investigate these things and it'll take years. And even if they build their cases, there's absolutely no guarantee of Vladimir Putin will pay any price very soon. And Canada's former top general pleads guilty to obstruction of justice. This is an unprecedented case. It sparked a reckoning over military culture that continues today in this country. The judge, of course, didn't want to burden Vance with a criminal conviction, calling him a man of good character, which uh, seems a pretty tough pill to swallow, given all we've heard about what he did to his subordinate. And he committed so much dishonor. Let's get talking. This is On Point. With Alex Pearson. Dictator. I, I just did a quick review um, in, uh, in the dictionary. So according to o- the Oxford Dictionary, a dictator is a ruler with total power over a country, typically one who has obtained control by force. There are many Canadians that would believe, that would hold the view, that this does apply to Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. And it is up to... I apologize for using his name, to the Prime Minister of Canada. And, it, and it's actually up to the Canadian people to determine that. And they'll be determining that at the next election. If Conservatives want to be taken seriously, then they need to be serious. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, March 30th. And if the Conservatives ever want to get out of opposition, then they got to stop playing these games. On Tuesday, in the House, Lethbridge... MP Conservative Rachel Thomas suggested that, yes, Justin Trudeau is a dictator because, according to Thomas, many Canadians see him as a dictator, which is not a fact. That is her opinion. And I'm sure many do think he's a dictator. And sure, he has abused his power in this country many, many times, I'd say, but it does not meet the threshold of an actual dictator. And given Thomas points out in her comments that he needs to be voted out in the next election, well, that would be proof We are not a dictatorship in this country. And for an elected official, you know, her comments sound silly and make her look completely unserious. And no, I'm not defending Justin Trudeau. I don't do that if you listen to this show. I just think calling him a dictator is dumb, and I don't think it serves anyone. But Thomas is clearly playing into the language heard last week at the European Union where a number of far-right leaders accused Trudeau of being a hypocrite and a threat to democracy over his handling of the Freedom Convoy protests in Ottawa. Christine Anderson is one of the opposition members in Germany who delivered one one of the, I would say, more blistering attacks 
A prime minister who openly admires the Chinese basic dictatorship who tramples on fundamental rights by persecuting and criminalizing his own citizens as terrorists just because they dared to stand up to his perverted concept of democracy should not be allowed to speak in this house at all. Mr. Trudeau, you are a disgrace for any democracy. Please spare us your presence. So Anderson was just one of several European politicians who attacked Trudeau last week, and it came after he lectured them on threats to democracies, where he used the trucking convoy as proof of that threat. And, you know, given what we're witnessing with Russia actually trying to undo a democracy in Ukraine, using a truck protest that was at best obnoxious and disruptive as proof our democracy is under attack, I found it embarrassing. And of course, it was self-serving, which it always is with Trudeau. And while many here wrote off the critics in the EU as whack jobs and it barely got any coverage, the criticism is still newsworthy because it's very clear that outside of Canada, the shine is off Trudeau. They no longer think, you know, he walks on water. They don't buy what he sells. They no longer show him the adoration he has been, you know, become so used to. Which is why the conservatives need to stop with the silly gotcha attacks, because they always backfire on them. Always. And instead, what they need to do is actually focus on his indefensible record over the last seven years. Because calling him a dictator only guarantees that the conservatives will be cast off as unserious. I mean, yeah, it plays to the base, but you've got to think about the bigger picture. And it looks desperate. And all it does is guarantee Trudeau that he will get cover that he doesn't deserve. So instead, Thomas and her colleagues are much better served by spending their time in question period hammering Trudeau on the testimony coming out of a parliamentary hearing, uh, looking into whether the emergency powers Trudeau ordered were justified. And it's very clear by now that there was no justification. Because we've heard testimony now from a number of witnesses that have managed to collapse the liberal claims that the powers were needed to fend off foreign funding, um, extremists back in the protests, because there was no foreign funding or terror activity, with executives from GoFundMe revealing that most donations, in fact, came from average Canadians. And on March 7th, an RCMP director of financial crime testified that terrorist activity wasn't even on their radar at all. And other testimony reveals that there were no signs that the protest was ideologically motivated by violent extremism. And now we know that despite reports claiming and stating that the group was violent and had loaded weapons, what do you know? Not one weapon was found when police finally did their job and moved in to make arrests. Not one weapon in that Ottawa protest. And now the man who wrote the Emergency Powers Act, Perrin Beatty, he's testified saying he never imagined that the act he created would be used in his lifetime because it was only to be used as a very last resort. So he said, in part, and I'll quote him, the police were called upon to deal with a breakdown in our political system. We can criticize how they did their job, but it should have never been necessary for them to fill the breach in the first place. Now that it has been used, it becomes easier to invoke. That it made law enforcement easier is clear. However, the issue is whether the deliberately high threshold was met 
and not whether the powers given were useful. And that little point there, and that little point right there, I think it's lost on a lot of people, including the media, which aren't even bothering to report or covering you know, any of these hearings. But these powers weren't designed to clean up a political or a policing mess, which is what now seems clear it was used for. It's not about, well, it worked. That's not what the powers are for. And that is an abuse of power. And it still doesn't make Trudeau a dictator. It makes him unethical and a liar, which we already know. He's got a very good track record on that. And that's what the conservatives should focus on. And if they can't do that, then they've got dozens of other serious issues that they can throw at Trudeau, whether it's carbon taxes, which go up on April 1st, cost of living with runaway inflation, energy security, reckless spending, this silly non-coalition coalition, the new costly climate plan, uh, his backflip on F-35s. I mean, the list of issues conservatives can throw at Trudeau is literally endless, and yet they keep turning to these kind of stupid gotcha stunts that just play to the few, but make them look unserious to a public at large that are very, very much looking for another party to vote for. So it is time to change the strategy, because that kind of stuff, it's not going to work. Sorry. It's ambitious and it's achievable. It's ambitious because it will get us to 40% lower emissions by 2030 compared to 2005 and keep us on track to net zero by 2050. It's achievable because it goes sector by sector, cutting emissions and creating opportunity across the country and the economy. All righty, so there's the Prime Minister unveiling uh, part of the new climate change plan, this $9.1 billion plan to cut emissions in our energy sector by 42% in, uh, by 2030. And back in 2016, Justin Trudeau announced his government's target for 2020, which of course was a target set by Stephen Harper, and back then it was to reduce Canada's emissions to 17% below 2005 levels by 2020. And Trudeau was out there yesterday blaming Harper for not meeting targets, but, but he didn't meet them either. No government has met targets that they set in this country for 34 years. So now he's going even further, but in order to achieve this new plan of, you know, reducing all of this in eight years, as Lori Goldstein pointed out in the uh, Toronto Sun, we'd have to shut down the entire oil sands, the entire agriculture sector, and electric sectors in this country, which, it, it, that's fantasy. It just is. And of course, missing from the conversation, and it's always missing from the conversation, is a role for nuclear energy, which is clean, it is green, it is affordable. So why aren't we talking about it? Dr. Chris Kiefer, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, has been talking about it for a very long time. Good to have you, sir. Nice to be back, Alex. Thanks for having me. 
you know, you would think that maybe when you see a country like Russia invade Ukraine and you see that energy is a security issue that we need to pivot, we need to be able to address needs and all the rest of it, um, that there would be this pivot within the government of its ideological uh, views on climate change and how to, to do what they want to do while making sure that we have energy security and Canadians can afford the energy that is getting increasingly more expensive. And yet they refuse to bring this into the conversation. Does it make any sense to you? You know, I think we would expect there to be energy literacy um, in a government that's that's planning a transition like this. And what this 2030 emissions reduction plan makes clear is that there is no energy literacy here. The plan le leans very, very heavily on hydrogen and batteries, right? Zero electric vehicles, et cetera. And we have to understand hydrogen and batteries are not energy sources, right? what we need to do is replace their energy carriers. We need to replace one energy source, fossil fuels, with another that's as good, as abundant, as on demand, as reliable as fossil fuels are. Maybe even a bit better, a little more energy dense, right? And that is, for all intents and purposes, nuclear energy, because we've tapped all of our great hydro resources and wind and solar are horribly intermittent. They're not reliable. We can't count on them. So this report is, is making a fundamental error, basically of, of physics and of energy literacy in confusing the two. Um, and, you know, as you're mentioning, at the same time, nuclear has been listed as a sin stock, essentially, by this government listed alongside gambling, mm -hmm. tobacco, firearms um, in their in their green bond framework. We have a lot of work to do if if we're seriously taking these climate commitments, um, uh, if we're taking them seriously, we've got a lot of work to do. And this is just misguided and it's not informed by just basic physics. Well, no, and missing from the conversation when you talk about re renewables or anybody in the climate uh, side talk about is they, they don't seem to notice that it also has a carbon footprint. I mean, batteries alone have to be dumped into um, you know, landfills, they've got a lot of toxics <laughs> in toxicity in them, uh, not to mention the way that they're mined and the child labor that are used for it, but uh, also renewables like solar panels, all that is made from oil derivatives. And of course, we buy it from China. So there, there are issues with renewables, including clear cutting of force, all that stuff that doesn't become part of the conversation. But you know, Stephen Gobol, the um, energy minister or environmental minister was asked about nuclear, why it's not part of the conversation. And he kind of just shrugs it off. And I thought maybe he would say, Say something, but it is very clear it's not an energy source that he believes should be part of the conversation. But if it were, Chris, like if it were, could it help achieve these these you know this big drop of forty two percent emissions? Would it actually be able to get us there? Well, I mean, nuclear is responsible for North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction um, in the coal phase and in Ontario. And you know, a lot of what this this plan relies on again is things like. Uh, carbon capture and storage and decarbonizing our oil and gas sectors, right? And again, that requires a source of energy, not an energy carrier, right? And so, mm. you know, carbon capture and storage is, is something we need to invest and we need to understand better. But right now, the it requires a lot more energy, right? You need to power the machinery that captures those emissions at the stack. And currently, we do that by burning an extra 10 or 20% more fossil fuels in that power plant to power that emissions capturing technology. You know, similarly, in the oil patch right now, we're burning a lot of gas and even coal to make the steam that liquefies mm -hmm. the bitumen so that we can access those petroleum resources. You know, we need a, another source of energy that that produces no CO2 in order to achieve that. Um, and, and that is nuclear.
Um, it's capable of, of, of providing process heat as well as just electricity. So, you know, they're doing everything in their power to avoid a really obvious solution. And one that is, again, made in Canada, a 96% Canadian supply chain. Every dollar that we spend on nuclear generates a buck 40 in GDP for this country. So it's just, it's nonsensical. And what we're asking for is that this government makes decisions based on science, that it consults with engineers, well, that's what they heavy say. industry and scientists in order, like, it's just about the evidence, right? You mentioned solar, for instance, right? If we look at the life cycle emissions of solar energy versus nuclear energy, it's about 10 times higher than nuclear, right? Because as you're mentioning, you know, we have to make the polysilicon that's done in places where coal is cheap and labor is cheap or even forced over in China, for instance, Right. Nuclear has the, especially Canadian nuclear, because there's some special things about it. We don't have to enrich our uranium. We use hydropower to mill our fuels um, and our ore. Um, it has the lowest carbon emissions of any energy technology out there. Right. And, and as I understand, you know, Germany, which was sh shutting down its nuclear um, reactors, are looking to bring them back online because they realize and they had to realize very quickly that they need energy security because otherwise they're reliant uh, on this deal they made with the devil, which is proving to be a real threat to their well-being. Um, so countries are looking at this. I just don't know why within the climate movement there is not a greater conversation about it. Is, is it within the movement itself that it's a – is there a, a – us versus them, like a, a, those who approve of it or don't? I mean, why is there such a – almost a hate for or a resentment to nuclear? Well, you know, for me, it's very frustrating because, you know, I'm a climate hawk. Um, I have a three-year-old son and I'm very concerned about what climate change means for his future. And that, that's what motivates me to advocate based on the best available evidence, the science, you know, what we've achieved so far to advocate for nuclear. It's a strange thing for me to be doing as an emergency physician who cares a lot about, you know, a lot of other issues. Um, but I feel like I'm spending a large part of my time fighting kind of a rearguard action against people who claim to, to, to be concerned about climate, yet are uh, avoiding the evidence of, of what is actually effective, avoiding looking at the science, avoiding even, you know, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You know, this is, this is the sort of oracle of climate science. And it's saying in all four of its decarbonization pathways, its model pathways, that we need to increase nuclear by 100 to 500 percent. You know, and that falls upon the countries that have nuclear programs like Canada. We're a tier one nuclear nation. And we have, again, that mm -hmm. whole supply chain captured. Um, so we have a, a, even a duty um, based upon what the climate scientists are saying to radically upscale. And we need to, because listen, I mean, electricity is, is, a, is a fraction of what we need to work on. Transportation is 25% of our emissions in Canada. We're a big country. We have large distances to cross, right? And the way to decarbonize that is largely to electrify it, right? The batteries are an energy carrier. We need to charge those batteries and we need to do it in a way that is uh, emissions free. You know, and it's estimated just here in Ontario that we're going to need to double or even triple our grid. It took about, you know, 75 years to build the energy infrastructure, the electricity infrastructure that we have right now. We need to double or triple that in about 28 years if we're serious about these net zero goals by 2050. So what we need is bold, bold action. We need a green bond, a big green mm -hmm. bond um, that that funds nuclear, right? Which is, you know, the most effect effective climate tool we have, given that we can't build much more hydro and given that it is the ultimate economic stimulus because every dollar that we spend, because it stays in our communities, it provides high paying jobs, all the spinoff through the community, all the heavy industry, right from the mine to the power plant. You know, it's, it, it, it is solving two of our problems at once, you know, in, in an era where we're trying to recover from COVID in an era of hyperinflation and economic uncertainty. 
These are the kind of investments and the kind of vision that we need from government. Well, I mean, no question. I mean, the world has changed and it's changed since you and I have uh, spoken uh, about this. Um, But the bottom line is, uh, you know, money talks and green stocks have been so popular for so long. And even a lot of people on Bay Street and Wall Street are walking away from them because after Russia invaded, it was like, oh, God, renewables are not the future. And so maybe the conversation will change. Um, If you were advising, I mean, the conservatives are going to have to come up with some kind of climate plan. Uh, You just can't run on um, a platform without one. Pierre Polyever has made clear, uh, and all of them have made clear now that carbon taxes are not going to be part of their plan. Um, And, you know, you've got Pierre Polyever who will develop pipelines. But um, if they built a plan, uh, Dr. Kiefer, with a nuclear solution, would that sell? I mean, I think I think conservatives are very concerned about the economy, right? And and stimulating the Canadian economy. And you know, energy is the secret ingredient in everything. Conservatives are a little averse about taking a strong role for government to make interventions in the economy, but I would make the argument with something as strategic as energy, which again feeds into everything else, that they need to take a lead on this. Now you mentioned, um, you know private capital ESG doesn't seem to have an interest in nuclear. Well, we had a really interesting experiment where Bruce Power, uh, which owns the largest operating nuclear plant in the mm-hmm. world up in, uh, in uh, Gray Bruce area, um, they issued a green bond themselves for $500 million. It was oversubscribed by six times. They had interest mm-hmm. for three, $3.5 billion in a $500 million fund. So listen, if we can remove the barriers to that private capital rushing in to fund nuclear, it will happen. And the secret to building nuclear on budget and on time is cheap capital. And that's the role for government, because if they can provide a bond, if they can guarantee that investment, then the capital can flow in and we can build these, you know, this critical infrastructure, you know, that we need for the next, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 years. And nuclear lasts, it endures. The the Bruce power plant is going to be around for something like 80 to 90 years with these refurbishments. Yeah. Well, uh, stay tuned. I mean, the conversation is happening. It's just uh, going to think I take a little more time. Appreciate your time always. Thank you. And if I can just pop in, sign the petition, yep. www.c4ne.ca. Can you say that slower? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry w- about that. W- so the petition, like, the petition to pressure the government to, uh, to include nuclear in the green bond framework, um, you can find it at our website, www.c4ne.ca. And that four is the number sign. So it's C- just C4ne.ca. Yeah. Oh, dot CA. CA. Okay, there you go. <laughs> www.c4ne.ca. I'm slow. I'm yeah. slow. Sorry. Petitions open right, for well, another week. We've got 10,000 signatures. You know, add your voice. Bring some sanity to this I will, debate. Uh, I will tweet it out. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. That is uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer, President of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, and, and it's real, uh, he and I could not be more different about our views on climate, whatever. I, I totally agree with him. I just think this is a wasted and lost opportunity. And that we're not looking at it at all tells me that ideology is seriously uh, blinding our decision makers. Alrighty, great to have you here on this Wednesday. So are war crimes being carried out by the Putin regime? I'm asking that kind of seriously because with civilians being directly targeted and President Biden calling Putin a butcher, the answer would seem fairly obvious to all of us that yes, However, there are formalities that we still need investigations into this to see if this is actually being carried out. And already, investigations by the international community 
are taking place. And now we're learning that the RCMP will be sending another special investigation group of seven officers, which will join three officers already on the ground at The Hague, where they will lend their support looking into ongoing investigations while undertaking their own investigations under Canada's Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Laws. But how long will all this take? And what's the process of getting these cases into a court of law? Because you look at, you know, Syria's leader Bashar al-Assad, he's an accused war criminal, and yet years later, he's still carrying out his carnage on the Syrian people every day, and a lot of people don't think he'll ever have to pay a price. Mark Kirsten is a fellow researcher and consultant based at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy here in uh, Toronto. He's also with the University of Toronto and a deputy director of the YMO Foundation. I hope I'm saying that right, Mark, but thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. This this is a really complex area of the law because we're dealing in international areas where every country is going to have a different law, different agreements. And so it's one of these areas, I think, that gets very muddy for people. But what is it? Um, we know that investigations are going on with the international community right now. What will our, 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 our own officers be doing and how long is it going to take? Yeah, all, all really good questions. Uh, we don't know the answer to all of them, in particular, how long it will take, but I think it's important to know that the International Criminal Court, an institution set up in the early 2000s to investigate war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, has been investigating these atrocities in Ukraine since uh, since the last month. And before that, they were looking into them since at least 2014. And that includes both uh, Ukrainians and, of course, Russian officers. So if we think about what happened in, in Crimea and uh, in eastern Ukraine, they were investigating those, those crimes. And now they're investigating in the context of this ongoing invasion uh, by Russia of Ukraine. And when, uh, when the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court opened the investigation, he basically asked, States, including Canada, which had requested this investigation to take place, to help him out, to help his office out. The International Criminal Court is kind of a cash-strapped institution, uh, in part mm-hmm. because states like Canada don't love funding it or don't love its budget increasing. So he asked for help, and now we have these RCMP officers and officers from a host of other countries going to help out in any way they can. What they'll be doing is they'll be helping collect evidence, analyze evidence, probably talk to witnesses that are fleeing Ukraine who may have seen war crimes or crimes against humanity. We're thinking of things like when we saw the, uh, the maternity war mm-hmm. uh, ward bombs yeah. or civilian areas bombed. So they'll be helping out with those types of things. And how long it'll take, we don't know, but it's absolutely essential that the evidence be collected in real time and preserved for the moment when it can be used. You don't want to wait until you have a court or a court case uh, before you start investigating, you have to do it as quickly as possible. So all of this is an attempt to do just that. Yeah, and it's not like our officers will be on the ground, I don't think, unless I'm uh, mistaken, in Ukraine. There already are investigators on the ground. They've been there for weeks, which is pretty wild when you see, you know, how dangerous it has been. Uh, but they're already c- collecting, um, you know, evidence on the ground in Ukraine. Now, do they have to wait Till this is over, or can they grab a sample of evidence and pre- and present that, or or how much evidence do they have to get before they can say, look, we've got a case? 
Yeah, so it's important to think about the kind of evidence that they're looking for. Like when you and I, Alex, look on, you know, on the TV screens or on Twitter or whatever, and we see these images of, you know, maternity wards and civilian areas and apartment buildings bombed out, it's pretty obvious to us that that's a war crime. That's something gone terribly, terribly wrong. And that's that's kind of the easy part. But what these investigators will have to do, be they from the International Criminal Court or from the RCMP, what their real goal is to link those crimes, link those war crimes that we see on TV to not just individuals, but the most senior individuals. So what they're going to be looking for is people on the ground in Ukraine who may be able to identify who who drove the tank that came into this village, who was giving orders, was there a general around? So they'll be looking to identify which people were involved and then try to figure out what the chain of command is to move upwards. You know, I think everybody, you know, wants, wants in the end for people in the Kremlin to be held to accountable. Those aren't people who ever walked into Ukraine over the last month. So what you're really looking forward for is to kind of work work backwards and build a case and find the links between the people who are actually committing the crimes on the ground in Ukraine and the kind of paper trail, if you can get one, or at least the evidence, the witness testimony that brings you all the way back to show that actually people like Vladimir Putin is sitting in the Kremlin and are authorizing these types of crimes to, to be committed. How you do that, well, have, there's lots of different strategies on how best to do that, and we'll see what these investigators and prosecutors in The Hague choose to do, but that's the kind of thing that they'll be, they'll be looking at. Now, just one more thing on this, yes, they can be on the ground, but they'll also be looking to all of the refugees who are moving out of Ukraine, who are moving into you know, parts of Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and even to Canada. And I think one of right. the things that these RCMP investigators will be looking to do alongside their international colleagues is to interview these people and, uh, you know, and to see what evidence and what testimony they can provide of what happened in Ukraine and who is ultimately responsible. Yeah. And I know that a part of this investigation will also be looking into um, making sure that people aren't coming into this country who might be involved in war crimes and trying to hide here um, and also trying to make sure that we're not aiding anything that's going on over there. You know, I think, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, maybe Putin, who says he'll go to the G20, you know, he'll show up and we can arrest him. It's it's just sadly not that uh, simple. Having said that, um, you know, he, he is planning to show up at the G20. Why can't he just be kicked out of that? Why, why would the international community allow for him to get any kind of uh, recognition at something like that if they're investigating him for war crimes? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. And I think it goes to maybe an even kind of bigger question. Can you still work with someone like Putin after, you know, not only seeing the crimes that have been committed over the last month, it's really easy to kind of be focused on what's happened over the last month. But I, I remember the chemical weapons used against civilians and children in Syria uh, mm-hmm. by the Russians, mm-hmm. the atrocities in, in Chechnya and Georgia and in Ukraine prior to this. We remember those things. So can you really talk to him? And I think the international community has to find a kind of fine balance. I don't know about the G20. I would suggest that he should not be in the G20. But at the same time, we have to end the violence in Ukraine, right? Every day people are dying. And if it takes talking to Putin and getting Russian forces out of Ukraine, and if that requires talking to him or to the people around him, as we see with the peace negotiations that are ongoing, well, 
it's hard to make that decision that we'd rather not talk to him if the cost of not talking to him is another civilian life, another mother, another child who perishes. So it's a very thin line to walk of how to negotiate with these awful, horrific human beings who are responsible for countless atrocities uh, to get them to stop the atrocities they're committed that they've committed while at the same time wanting, you know, what I think everybody wants, which is, you know, justice for Putin and hopefully justice in a, some kind of court of law for those responsible for these for these crimes. We want to call him what he is, which is a war criminal. But we also want to end the violence on the ground. And that might mean that surely has to mean talking to either him or the people around him to get it, to get him out of there. Yeah, I mean, Slobodan uh, Milosevic, I think, is the last big name where we heard, you know, he was uh, convicted in the court of law and then died. Uh, Bashar al-Assad has still not um, to been taken into a court. So, I mean, the the, the, the reality here, though, Mark, is uh, Vladimir Putin may be a war criminal, but he may very well never have to pay a price for that. Is that not true? Yeah, of course. Of course, it's quite possible that, you know, he, he, he won't. But I wonder... Um, you know, I, I was around in the in the early 2000s when, you know, similar people said similar things about, as he said, Milosevic. I don't think anybody in the you know, late 1990s would have said, oh, he, you know, he's going to be handed over to, you know, the Hague anytime soon, that it's not going to happen. And I think there's this kind of I think what's really important to keep in mind is just because we're not sure that these individuals will end up being prosecuted in The Hague or anywhere for that matter, doesn't mean we shouldn't do the work that's required of trying to get them uh, prosecuted in those types of tribunals and courts. I, I think it would be morally reprehensible if because we weren't sure that Putin would face justice, we said, OK, well, then it's not even worth investigating his crimes. Investigating his crimes is justice in its own right. I think, you know, Ukrainian civilians and victims and survivors can see that the international community, states like Canada and other European states, are taking this very, very seriously. I think that matters. I think that that sends a really important signal of solidarity to these people. And I think it has to happen. And the, the hope is, right, that you have a crack in the wall, that, you know, he travels to the wrong place, or maybe there's regime change and people hand him over, like in the former Yugoslavia, as you mentioned, with Milosevic. And that you create these, yeah. you know, you get these opportunities to do the what what once seemed impossible. And I think I don't want to seem too, you know, overly optimistic because we have to manage expectations. It's possible that this will never happen. It's possible that it will take a very long time. But I think there's something incredibly important about trying and preparing the grounds um, because justice requires it. Yeah, well, absolutely. No question about it. It's just not going to be easy and it's not going to happen overnight, but we'll continue watching it. Very much appreciate your time on this, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. That's uh, Mark Kirsten joining us here with this. So this is one of those stories that you wish would uh, come to a conclusion really quickly. It's just not that easy, but we'll watch it. After Global broke the story, General Vance called you. Many times. What did he say to you, Kelly? told me to lie. What did he tell you to lie about? Having sex. He first started telling me not to say anything about anything. He gave me barriers when I could say what, that yes, I could say that we had a relationship engaged on. No, I couldn't say that we had a relationship after that, that we were just friends. He was giving me what to say. And I kept on asking him, don't you understand? You're asking me to lie. 
Well, that is the voice of Major Kelly Brennan. She is the woman who broke her silence in revealing an explosive set of allegations to Global News last February of 2021, which would lead to the downfall of Canada's former top officer and, of course, result in charges against former General Jonathan Vance. And today, in what is an unprecedented case, the former chief of defense appeared by Zoom, where he pleaded guilty to a charge of obstruction of justice. And the punishment for this crime, well, a conditional discharge, which will last 12 months, which is not much. The judge agreed that uh, he didn't want to burden Vance with a criminal conviction because he's a good man of character which I think would be a pretty tough pill to swallow given all that we've heard about what Vance did to Major Brennan. And of course, given the allegations sparked a reckoning of our military's culture that continues to implode today. Mercedes Stevenson is our Ottawa Bureau Chief and of course host of the West Block and she is the one who broke this story. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Not every day in this country that you see a man of this stature um, come down on a pretty serious charge. What was it like to watch Vance on uh, Zoom as he pleaded guilty? You know, uh, historic. We've never seen a chief of the defense staff plead guilty to and um, be convicted of a criminal charge in our history in Canada. Uh, Former chief of the defense staff in this case, but same goes for there too. So that is um, remarkable. Uh, He appeared via iPhone. This is, of course, the pandemic. At times, it was kind of bizarre. His lawyer was appearing from his bathroom um, (laughs) at home on this Zoom call. Just things you would never normally see. Um, Vance looked kind of resigned to his fate. He didn't say very much other than um, that he pled guilty. He declined an opportunity to address the court. There was an agreed upon statement of facts. Um, it was quite interesting hearing that being read out because we actually have recordings of Global News uh, at Global News of a number of the statements that the, the Crown was reading out from the agreed upon statement of facts. The other thing that really struck me about this is that there was an extensive amount of material read in support of Vance um, from former generals, Canadian and U.S., who had worked with him, uh, former deputy minister, other colleagues, none serving still, which was interesting, uh, but, mm. but former uh, high-ranking officials supporting him. None of those letters actually addressed what he's done, which the Crown himself noted, um, but they were read into the record. And Major Kelly Brennan's victim impact statement was not read into the record. Um, And that that has a lot of, you know, victims groups and experts in sexual misconduct uh, and sexual offenses saying, you know, this this does not combined with a conditional sentence, send a great message about what happens even when somebody admits that they are guilty. Uh, Mind you, Vance was not charged with a sexual offense. He was charged with obstructing justice, which was telling Major Kelly Brennan to lie to the police about the nature of their relationship. Uh, But it it was very interesting to see that contrast between the amount of time that was spent talking about John Vance's character in a positive way um, and the very limited time that was spent talking about the impact on Major Brennan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unheard of. I'm trying to, why wouldn't they have her victim impact read into court, which is very odd. Um, but ultimately, this guy's going to get 80 hours of community service. He's not going to have a criminal record. And I think that will be seen by many as, well, two-tiered justice, because obstruct justice is a serious charge. He was in a position of um, power. Um, the implications and the fallout is not something that only... Uh, affects uh, Major Brennan and the other complainant who came forward, it affects Canadians. Um, you know, he, he it's not that he ought to have known. Um, he did know. And, and again, to me, 
the justice doesn't fit the crime, even if you tell me, well, he did plead guilty, he spared the person, uh, you know, a trial, all the rest of it. Okay, yeah, but he's getting basically a slap on the wrist, if that. Well, there were some other sort of interesting comments that were made in in the um the decision in the sentencing, as well as just in the court proceedings today, including from the defense lawyer who argued that there's about to be significantly increased defense spending. That, of course, is a result of the war in Ukraine, and that his client would have otherwise potentially benefited financially, and now he won't. I found that pretty jarring, um, but that was given as a reason of how John Vance has already suffered. Also noted was the fact that he is paying child support on the daughter he shares with Kelly Brennan. This is the first time he's publicly admitted that he shares a child. He denied that to Global News. We got a DNA test in September that showed that he was, in fact, the father of this child. But he only started paying child support last month, not when it was revealed to him in September. That was not brought up in court. Um, So I found what was said and what was not said to be equally interesting. Well, no question about it. Um, You know, this will be met, I think, by those who come forward. I mean, first of all, it's hard enough to get anyone to come forward, um, you know, to go up against someone in a position of trust. Major Brennan, when she spoke with you, had talked about the fact that she knew she was in this David versus Goliath battle. She herself was told Vance is untouchable. Um, And so he's pleaded guilty. But again, he is pretty untouchable because he's not going to really pay any penalties um, other than, you know, he's not going to get kind of consultant gigs and and the cushy uh, plum, you know, juicy things that go along with being a former top soldier in this country. Yeah, it's 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 obviously, regardless of the criminal record, a massive hit to his reputation. I mean, this is someone who commanded international respect, who had a very promising career ahead of him. Potentially, I've had numerous sources tell me as a diplomat for Canada uh, in an appointment like somewhere like Australia. Um, A lot of these former generals go into lobbying and they make very significant salaries in terms of lobbying the department that they used to work for in the future or providing advice to companies on the the sort of the inner workings of how the Department of National Defense works. Right now, people do not want to be associated with John Vance. Um, Mm. And beyond that, I mean, I know John Vance. I know him very, very well. I have known him since he was in command in Kandahar. The military was his entire identity. And there is no question in my mind that what has happened for him will have been an extremely painful experience. Um, That doesn't go to whether or not you know, a judge should or shouldn't uh, leave him with a criminal record for what he did. But um, the emotionally crippling effect on him, and I've heard this from a number of his friends, from having lost that dignity, from having lost that reputation. I remember him saying to me when I used to break stories he didn't like, and I'd say, why are you so upset about this? We'll be talking on background. It's about the institution. Um, And he said to me more than once, Mercedes, I am the institution. So for him, I think this was very much um, an attack on his fundamental identity. uh, And that will be something that that he carries with him for a long time, I suspect. Well, yeah, but that is uh, the choice he made and the risk he knew he was taking, given the fact that he went to such lengths to try to get Major Brennan to keep quiet. So what, you know, is her reaction? Because I don't think she was looking for jail time either. Having said that, she came forward at great risk. Um, You know, he only, you know, acknowledged his child very recently. Um, And she has paid a price as well. And so what's her reaction been to this, given the fact that he was contacting her up until, what, a month ago? Uh, Well, I'm not sure how recently they were in contact. But by the way, he's not allowed to contact her anymore, other than in regards to their daughter. 
Uh, Major Brennan hasn't given me her take on this, but I can tell you that I know um, she was frustrated. She felt um, that this, this was very, very difficult emotionally for her and for her children. Um, the trial was not scheduled until next year. Um, and I'm not sure what went into her thought process exactly in terms of approving this, but I know that it was weighing on her and on her kids quite heavily. And at the end of the day, John Vance is also the father of one of her children. Uh, mm -hmm. And there, there is going to be that relationship. Um, but I think it had to be a, a very difficult decision for her to make. Well, you know, he is, uh, it's a case, a unique case also because it wasn't dealt with by the military. It was handed to the police. And there are other cases before the police with other um, you know, ranking officers who are, are accused of things. Um, so that still has to go through the court. And then, of course, we're still waiting for another report from a, a, a justice on recommendations that will be brought forward, I guess, in May. Um, but again, the military remains to this day in chaos. Yeah, it's, it's you know, there are a number of, of very senior officers who have either resigned uh, or been forced out of their posts. Um, he is not the only senior officer to have been charged criminally. Um, and that goes to sort of how endemic this was at the senior ranks who were talking very publicly about Operation Honor, which John Vance invented, by the way. And Kelly Brennan says she's the one who came up with the name for it. Um, and then privately conducting themselves very differently. And that's where a lot of the anger I've heard comes from people in the Canadian Armed Forces. It's not just about um, the fact that this happened, it's about the hypocrisy that corporals were punished heavily for telling an inappropriate joke at a mess dinner or in the smoke pit. But you had generals exploiting their position with their subordinates for sexual relationships uh, or yeah. for, you know, basically wielding the sexual power over people. And that was really a feeling of deep betrayal, that there was a double standard. And I know um, that there is a feeling as well about double standard and justice after what's come out today among some members of the Canadian Forces who I've spoken with. Fascinating day. Nonetheless, all right, uh, stay tuned. This story is still not written yet either. Uh, Mercedes, appreciate your time. I know it's been a busy one. Thanks, Alex. That is Mercedes Stevenson, of course. Of course, she is our uh, bureau chief. Um, Bureau Chief, I was going to call her an officer. She is the uh, Bureau Chief here for us in Ottawa. And of course, she'll have more details on this as she uh, reports on it for the West Block. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live Monday through Friday starting 7 o'clock here sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. Thanks for listening. This is On Point.